So is this it for the human race? Is this the end? The television announcer had blonde hair that looked lacquered, and up close, a thick coating of makeup that made his face look like clay. Keelan shifted in his seat, aware of the heat of the set lights and a bead of sweat traveling down the back of his neck. It's a very interesting question you pose, he said. He wondered how much of his usual Socratic method would be sacrificed in editing for a television audience. They told him this segment was part of a feature, an hour-long presentation on the crisis with expert interviews. His would be intercut along with the others and aired after the evening news later in the week. The interviewer, Craig something, was still looking at him with expectation and a hint of impatience. It was all in the eyes, all of the cues. Once he'd asked the question, the interviewer probably knew it was safe to do this sort of silent communication. Encouragement, intimidation, loathing. It was one of the skill sets. Keelan knew what the man wanted him to say. He wanted him to say, I'm afraid it very well could be the end. I'm afraid, Keelan began, and it was true he realized he was afraid of the virus, of whatever it was he might be about to say. He really almost wanted to stop right there, but the interviewer's carefully groomed eyebrows shot up in expectation. I'm afraid, said Keelan, it's too soon to tell. Now Craig's eyebrows were crestfallen, dejected. Keelan had let them down, along with the television viewing public who needed to be told how to feel, what to think, what to do. Relenting, Keelan leaned, for leaned forward on the desk, closer to camera two, revealing the corduroy elbow patches on his tweed jacket. He made his eyes as owlish as he knew how. But it might be, Craig, it just might be. Keelan had made amends to the eyebrows. They were furrowed and intense as Craig seized on the bone he'd thrown. When you said it was too soon to tell, is there anything we can do that might make a difference? Absolutely, said Keelan. He dropped his voice to a suspenseful pitch. How we conduct ourselves throughout this crisis might very well determine the future of the human race. There would be the usual blowback to contend with. The new chair would be happy. He was always happy when there was something that the university administration called an interface with the public. Schools weren't just about learning anymore. It was about creating a brand, attracting students. Publicity was good. Being the expert, even on the end of the world, had a certain cachet. But Keelan's colleagues in the department might have a different take on things. He'd been careful, though, not to simplify or dumb things down. He'd streamlined, perhaps. It was inevitable in a soundbite. He hoped they would acknowledge the difference. Keelan predicted that there would be some of his colleagues, the younger ones, no doubt, who would wonder why him, or more to the point, why not them. This time around, if anyone said anything, he'd deflect with a joke about the beard. The eccentricity of his looks was probably one reason, combined with the gravitas of age, that he'd become the recent face of philosophy on television. A long gray beard was still a symbol of wisdom, if only archetypally. But television producers knew almost as well as scholars how critical the language of visual symbolism worked unconsciously on the viewer. In fact, it would almost be worth bringing one in for a guest lecture on the subject, if classes were ever reinstated. At home, he fitted his key in the lock, sparing a look over both shoulders as he did so. He wasn't sure when this had become a habit, probably around the time he'd started shopping at the bulk stores. But the street was deserted anyway. The street hockey kids, the toddlers on plastic tricycles, the old Portuguese men hosing down their little squares of sidewalk. All of them gone in the wake of Aramis. The virus. Gone inside, anyway. Keelan locked the door behind him and dropped his briefcase beside the umbrella stand before frowning at the wooden receptacle painted with a picture of an umbrella and the word parapluie. Peculiar artifacts of this sort, of very limited and specific usages, seem to exist in rebuke against an age of wealth and complacency. Umbrella stands, grapefruit spoons, nose hair clippers, 
These were not things that ought to belong to a world in crisis. He didn't think he had gone too far in the interview. If anything, he'd been cautious. The fact was that a worst-case scenario, while perhaps not statistically more likely than any other, they'd have to ask an epidemiologist about that, and they probably had, felt historically, or at any rate narratively, inevitable. As a species, they were well overdue for reaping what they'd sowed, and the very worst was the only outcome that Keelan had come to believe possible. The illness would paralyze the economy, scarcity of goods and foods would follow, with conflict and chaos hot on its heels. With security imperiled, liberty would be curtailed, if the government still had enough resources to impose or restore order. In the meantime, many regular folks would suffer. And in the end, an enterprising few would get richer. Whoever had stockpiled the generators or the water-purifying tablets or the dehydrated yams, whatever scheme turned out to be important in the crisis or the rebuilding period. And yes, maybe it was only because he was old that he believed things were coming to an end. His certainty might be nothing more than garden-variety solipsism. If Annie were still alive, she would probably point out something along those lines. <laughs>